Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, this is the Fotations Life to Tape podcast. We are uh, continuing with the South Sea Tales by Jack London, and we're reading the story, or continuing the story, story of the Seed of McCoy. And uh, if you didn't catch the last podcast, um, the first part of this story was there. So we're continuing from where we left off. It's off to the westward, McCoy said encouragingly. At worst, we'll only be on the edge of it. But Captain but Captain Davenport refused to be comforted, and by the light of the lantern read up on the chapter of the Etamon that related to the strategy of shipmasters in cyclonic storms. From somewhere amidship, a silence was broken by a low whimpering from the cabin boy. Oh, shut up, Captain Davenport yelled suddenly and with such force that it startled every man on board and to frighten the offender into a wild wail of terror. Mr. Kong, the captain said, in a voice that trembled with rage and nerves, will you kindly step forward and stop that brat's mouth with a deck mop? But it was McCoy who went forward, and in a few minutes had the boy comforted and asleep. Shortly before daybreak, the first breath of air began to move from the southeast, increasingly swiftly to a swift and stiffer breeze. All hands were on deck, waiting for what might be behind it. We're all right now, Captain, said McCoy, standing close to his shoulder. Hurricane is to the westward, and we're south of it. This breeze is the insuck. You won't blow, it won't blow any harder. You can begin to pull sail on her. But what's the good? Where shall I sail? This is the second day without observation, and we should have sighted Halo's Island yesterday morning. Which way does it bear? North, south, east, or what? Tell me that, and I'll make sail in a jiffy. I am no navigator, Captain McCoy said in his mind way. I used to think I was one, was the retort, before I got into the Palmatis. At midday, the cry of breakers ahead was heard from the outlook. Pyrenees was kept off, and a sail after a sail was loosened and sheathed home. Pyrenees was gliding through the water and fighting a current that threatened to set her down upon the breakers. Officers and men were working like mad, cook and cabin boy, Captain Davenport himself and McCoy, all lending a hand. It was a close shave. It was a low shoal, a bleak and perilous place over which the sea broke increasingly where no man could live, and on which not even seabirds could rest. The Pyrenees swept within a hundred yards of it before the wind carried her clear, and at the moment the panting crew, its work done, burst into a torrent of curses upon the head of McCoy, of McCoy who had come on board and proposed the run to Mangervia, and lured them away from the safety of Pitcairn Island to certain destruction in this baffling and terrible stretch of sea. But McCoy tranquil but McCoy's tranquil soul was undisturbed. He smiled at them with simple and gracious benevolence, and somehow the exalted goodness of him seemed to penetrate their dark and somber souls, shaming them and from 
every shame, stilting the cursed vibrations in their throats. Bad waters, bad waters, Captain Davenport was murmuring as his ship forged clear, but he broke off abruptly to gaze at the shoal, which should have been dead astern, but which was already on the Pyrenees weather-quartered and working up rapidly to windward. He sat down and buried his face in his hands, and the first mate saw, and McCoy saw, and the crew saw that he had seen south of shore an easterly current had set them down upon it. North of the shore a equally swift westwardly current clutched the ship and was sweeping her away. I have heard of these pandemonious before, the captain groaned, lifting his blanched face from his hands. Captain Moindale told me about them after losing his ship on them, and I laughed at him behind his back. God forgive me, I laughed at him. What shore is that? He broke off to ask McCoy. I don't know, Captain. Why don't you know? Because I never saw it before, and because I have never heard of it. I do know that it is not chartered. These waters have never been thoroughly surveyed. Then you don't know where we are. No more than you do, McCoy said gently. At four in the afternoon, coconut trees were sighted, and apparently growing out of the water. A little later, the low land of an atoll was raised above the sea. I know where we are now, Captain McCoy lowered, lowered the glass from his eyes. That's Resolution Island. We are forty miles beyond Halo Island, and the wind is in our teeth. Get ready to beach her, then. Where's the entrance? There's only a canoe passage, but now that we know where we are, we can run for Barley de Toil. It is only a hundred and twenty miles from here, due north. With a breeze, we can be there at nine o'clock tomorrow morning. Captain Davenport consulted the charts and debated with himself. If we wreck here, McCoy added, we'd have to make a run for Barley and Detoy, and boats just the same. The captain gave his orders, and once more the Pyrenees swung off in another run across the inhospitable sea. And the middle of the next afternoon saw despair and mutiny on her smoking deck. The current accelerated, the wind slackened, and the Pyrenees had stagged off to the west. The lookout sighted Barley de Toy to the westward, barely visible from the masthead, and vainly and for hours the Pyrenees tried to beat up to it. Ever the mirage, the coconut trees hovered on the horizon, visible only to the masthead. From the deck they were hidden by the bulge of the world. Again, Captain Davenport consulted McCoy and the chart, and Megmo lay seventy-five miles to the southwest. Its lagoon was thirty miles long, and its entrance was excellent. When Captain Davenport gave his orders, the crew refused duty. They announced that they had had enough of the hellfire under their feet. There was the land. What if the ship could not make it? They would make it in the boats. Let her burn, then. Their voices mounted to some thing to them. They had several faithful, they had served faithfully the ship, and now they were going to serve themselves. They sprang to the boats and, brushing the second and third mate out of the way, and proceeded to swing the boat out and to prepare to lower away. Captain Davenport and the first mate, revolver in hand, were advancing to break the poop when McCoy, who had climbed on the top of the cabin, began to speak. He spoke to the soldiers to the sailors, and at the first sound of his dove-like cooing voice they paused to hear. He extended to them his own inventable serenity and peace. His soft voice and simple thoughts flowed out to them in a magic stream, soothing them against their wills, 
long forgotten things came back to them, and some remembered lullaby songs of childhood and the content and rest of the mother's arm at the end of the day. There was no more trouble, no more anger, no more ilk in all the world. Everything was as it should be, and it was only a matter of course that they should turn their backs upon the land and put to sea once more with hell fire hot beneath their feet. McCoy spoke simply, but it was not what he spoke. It was his personality that spoke more eloquently than any word he could utter. It was an alchemy of soul, acuity, sub, subtle, and profound, deep, a mysterious emancipation of the spirit, seductive, sweetly humble, and terribly imperious. It was the illumination of the dark crypts of their soul, and a compulsion of purity and gentleness vastly greater than that which resides in the shining, deep-spirited revolvers of the officers. The men wavered reluctantly where they stood, and those who had loosed the turns made fast again. Then one, and then another, and then all of them began to sidle away, saddle awkwardly away. McCoy's face was breathing with childlike pleasure as he descended from the top of the cabin. There was no trouble, for that matter, there had been no trouble averted. There had there never had been any trouble, for there was no place for such in a blissful wor world in which he lived. You hypnotized them, Mr. Kong grinned at him, speaking in a low voice. Those boys are good, was the answer. Their hearts are good. They have had a hard time and have worked hard, and they will work hard to the end. Mr. Kong had not time to reply, his voice ringing out orders. The sailors sprang to obey, and the Pyrenees was paying slowly off from the wind until her bow could point in the direction of Mercmo. The wind was very light, and after sundown almost ceased. It was insufferably warm, and fore and aft men sought vainly to sleep. The deck was too hot to lie upon. The poisonous vapors oozing through the seams crept like evil spirits over the ship, stealing into the nostrils and windpipes of the unwary, causing fits of sneezing and coughing. The stars bleaked lazily in the dim vault overhead, and the moon, and the moon rising in the east touched with it the lights of myriads of wisps and threads and spiraling films of smoke that intertwined and wreathed and twisted along the deck over the rails and up the masts and shrouds tell me captain davenport rubbing his smarting eyes what happened with that bounty crowd after they reached Bicaran? the account i read said they burnt the bounty and that they were not discovered until many years later but what happened in the meantime i've always been curious to know they were men with their necks in the rope. There were some native men, too, and there were women. That made it all look like trouble right from the jump. There was trouble, McCoy answered. They were bad men. They quarreled about the women right away. One of the mutineers, William, lost his wife, and all the women were Tahiti women. His wife fell from the cliffs when hunting seabirds. Then he took the wife of one of the native men away from him. All the native men were made very angry by this, and they killed off nearly all the mutineers. Then the mutineers escaped and killed off all the native men. The women helped, and the natives killed each other. Everybody killed everyone. They were terrible men. Timiti was killed by two other natives while they were combing his hair in French, 
hair and friendship. The white men had sent them to do it, and then the white men killed them. The wife, Talibu, killed him in a cave because she wanted a white man for a husband. They were very wicked. God had hidden his face from them. At the end of two years, all the native men were murdered, and all the white men except four. They were young John Adams, McCoy, who was my great-grandfather, and Quintel. He was very bad. He was a very bad man too. Once, just because his wife did not catch enough for fish for him, he bit off her ear. They were a bad lot, Mr. Kong exclaimed. Yes, they were very bad, McCoy agreed, and went on serenely cooing of his blood and lust of his inquisitious ancestry. My great-grandfather escaped murder in order to die by his own hand. He made a still and manufactured alcohol from the roots of the Thai plant. Quintal was his chum, and they got drunk together all the time. At last McCoy got delirium tremors, died, tried a rock to his neck, and jumped into the sea. Quintal's wife, the one whose ear he bit off, also got killed by falling from the kiss off the cliffs. Then Quintal went to the young and demanded his wife, and went to Adams and demanded his wife. Adams and Young were afraid of Quintal. They knew he would kill them, so they killed him, the two of them together, with a hatchet. Then Young died, and that was all and that was about all the trouble they had. I should say so, Captain Davenport snorted. There was nobody left to kill. You see, God had hidden his face, McCoy said. By morning, no more than a faint air was blowing from the eastward, and unable to make an appreciable southern by it, Captain Davenport hauled up full and by on the port track. He was afraid of that terribly westwardly current, which had cheated him out of so many ports of refuge. All day the calm continued, and all night, while the sailors on short rotation of dried bananas were, gumbl were gumbling, also they were growing weak and complaining of stomach pains caused by the straight banana diet. All day the current wept in the Pyrenees to the westward, while there was no wind to bear her south. In the middle of the first dog watch, coconut trees were sighted due south, the tuft heads rising above the water, marking the low-lying atoll beneath. That is Tegan Island, McCoy said. We need breeze tonight, or else we'll miss Manico. What's become of the southeast trade? the captain demanded. Why don't it blow? What is the matter? It is the evaporation from the big lagoons. There are so many of them, McCoy explained. The evaporation upsets the whole system of trades. It causes the wind to back up and blow gales from the southwest. This is dangerous archipelago, Captain. Captain Davenport faced the old man, opened his mouth, and was about to curse, but paused and refrained. McCoy's absence was a rebuke of the blasphemies that stirred in his brain and the dirt and trembled his larynx. McCoy's influence had been growing during the many days they had been together. Captain Davenport was an autocrat of the sea, fearing no man, never bridling his tongue, and now he found himself unable to curse in the presence of this old man with the feminine brown eyes and the voice of a dove. When he realized this, Captain Davenport experienced a distinct shock. The old man was merely the seed of McCoy, of McCoy, of the bounty, the, mo the mutineer fleeing from the hemp that waved him in England, the McCoy who was a powerful, 
a power for evil in the early days of blood and lust and violent death on the Picard Islands. Captain Davenport was not religious, yet in that moment he felt he a mad impulse to cast himself and the, at the other's feet, and to say he knew not what, and an emotional that was deeply stirred in him, rather than a coherent thought, and he was aware in some vague way of his own unworthiness and smallness in the presence of this other man who possessed the simplicity of a child and the gentleness of a woman. Of course he could not so humble himself before the eyes of his officers and men, and yet the anger that had prompted the blasphemy still raged in him. He suddenly smote the captain with his clenched hands and cried, Look here, old man, I won't be beaten. These this Pamontius have cheated and tricked me and made a fool of me. I refuse to be beaten. I'm going to drive this ship and drive and drive and drive clear of the Pamontius to China. But what I found, but what I find a bed for her. If every man deserts, I'll stand by her. I'll show the Pamontius they can't fool me. She's a good girl and I'll stick by her as long as there's a plank to stand on. You hear me? And I'll stay with you, Captain McCoy said. During the night, light, baffling airs blew out of the south, and the frantic captain, with his cargo of fire, watched and measured the westward drift, and went off by himself at times to curse softly that McCoy, so McCoy could not hear. Daylight showed more palms growing out of the water to the south. That's the leeward point of Malco, McCoy said. Catu is only a few miles to the west. We may make that. But the current sucking between the two islands swept them to the northwest, and at one in the afternoon they saw the palms of Ketu rise above the sea and sink back into the sea again. A few minutes later, just as the captain had discovered that a new current from the northeast had gripped the Pyrenees, the masthead lookout raised coconut palms in the northwest. That is Raka said Captain McCoy. We won't make it without the wind. The current is drawing us down to the southwest, but we must watch out. A few miles farther on the current flows north, a turn in the circle of the northwest. This will sweep us away from Faraka, and Faraka is the place for the Pyrenees to find her bed. They can sweep all they they can sweep all they dolls they well please, Captain Davenport remarked with the heat. We'll find a bed for her somewhere just the same. But the situation on the Pyrenees was reaching a culmination. The deck was so hot that it seemed an increase of a few degrees would cause it to burst into flames. In many places, even the heavy soiled shoes of the men were no protection, and they were compelled to step lively to avoid scorching their feet. The smoke had increased and grown more acrid. Every man on board was suffering from inflamed eyes, and they coughed and strangled like a crew of tuberculosis, like a crew of tuberculosis patients. In the afternoon, the boat were swung out and equipped. The last several packages of dried bananas were stored in them, as well as instruments of the officers. Davenport even put the chronometer into the longboat, fearing the blowing up of the deck at any moment. All night, this apparition weighed heavily on all, and the first morning light, the hollow eyes and the ghastly faces, they stared at one another as if surprised that the Pyrenees still held together and that they were still alive. 
walking rapidly at times, even occasionally breaking into undignified hop, skip, and run, Captain Davenport inspected his ship. It is a matter of hours, if not minutes, he announced on his return to the poop. The cry of land came down from the masthead. From the deck the land was visible, and McCoy went aloft, while the captain took advantage of the opportunity to curse some of the bitterness out of his heart, but the cursing was suddenly stopped by a dark line on the water, which, sighted to the northwest, was not a squall, but a regular breeze, disrupted trade wind eight points out of its direction, but resuming business once more. Hold her up, Captain, McCoy said as soon as he reached the poop. That's the easterly point of Fukara, and we'll go in through the passage full tilt, the wind abeam and every sail drawing. At the end of the hour, the coconut trees and the low-lying land were visible from deck. The feeling that the end of the Pyrenees' resistance was imminent weighed on heavily on everybody. Captain Davenport and the three boats lowered and dropped short astern, and a man to each other kept them apart. The Pyrenees closely skirted the shore, the surf wind atoll, and barely two cabin lengths away. A minute later, the land parted, exposing a narrow passage and the lagoon beyond, a great mirror thirty miles in length and a third as a broad. Now, Captain, for the last time the yards of the Pyrenees swung around and she obeyed the will and headed to the passage. She turned. The turn had scarcely been made and nothing had been coiled down when the men and mates swept back to the poop in a panic terror. Nothing had happened yet. They averted that something was going to happen. They could not tell why. They merely knew that it was about to happen. McCoy stated forward to take up his position on the bow in order to con the vessel in, but the captain gripped his arm and whirled him about. Do it from here, he said. That deck's not safe. What's the matter, he demanded the next instant. We're standing still. McCoy smiled. You are buckling at seven knot current, Captain, he said. That is the way the full ebb runs out of this passage. At the end of an hour, the Pyrenees had scarcely gained her length, but the wind freshened and she began to forge ahead. Better get into the boats, some of you, Captain Davenport commanded. His voice was still ringing, and the men were just beginning to move in obedience when midship deck of the Pyrenees, in a mass of flames and smoke, was flung upward into the sails and rigging. Part of it remained there, and the rest falling into the sea, the wind being a beam, was what had saved the men crowded aft. They made a blind rush to gain the boats, but McCoy's voice carrying its convincing message and vast calm and endless time stopped them. Take it easy, he was saying. Everything is all right. Pass the boy down, somebody, please. The man at the wheel had forsaken it in a flunk, and Captain Davenport leaped and caught the spoke in time to prevent the ship from yawing in the current and going ashore. Better take charge of the boats, he said to Mr. Kong. Tow one of them short, right under the quarter. When I go over it, it will be on the jump. Mr. Kong hesitated, then went over the rail and lowered himself into the boat. Keep her off half point, Captain. Captain Davenport gave his start, and he had thought he had the ship to himself. Aye, half a point it is, he answered. Amidship the Pyrenees was an open flaming furnace, out of which poured an immense volume of smoke, which rose high above the mast and completely hid the forward part of the ship. 
McCoy, in the shelter of the mizzen shroud, continued his difficult task of conning the ship through the intricate canal. The fire was working aft along the deck and the sea of in a set of explosions, while the soaring tower of canvas and the main mast went up and vanished in a sheet of flame. For though they could not see them, they knew that the sail head sails were still drawing. If only she didn't burn all her canvas off before she makes it inside, the captain groaned. She'll make it, McCoy reassured with supreme confidence. There is plenty of time. She is bound to make it. And once inside, we'll put her before it, that it will keep the smoke away from us and hold back the fire working aft. A tongue of flame sprang up in the mizzen and reached hungrily for the lowest tier of the canvas, missing it and vanished. From aloft, the burning shred of rope fell square on the back of Captain Davenport's neck. He acted with the celery of one stung by a bee and reached up and brushed the offending fire from his skin. How is she heading, Captain? Nor'west by west. Keep her west-nor'west. Captain Davenport pulled the wheel and steadied her. West by north, Captain. West by north she is. And now west. Slowly, point by point, she entered the lagoon, and the Pyrenees described the circle that put her before the wind, and point by point, with all the calm and certitude of a thousand years of time to spare, McCoy chanted the changing course. Another point, Captain. A point it is. Captain Davenport whirled several spokes over, and suddenly reversing and coming back to one to check her. Steady, steady she is, right on it. Despite the fact that the wind was now astern, the heat was so intense that Captain Davenport was compelled to steal sidelong glances into the binnacle, letting go of the wheel now with one hand, now with the other, rubbing or shielding the blistering che his blistering cheeks. McCoy heard the crinkling and shivering of the smell of it. Strong in other nostrils compelled him to look toward McCoy with sudden solitude. Captain Davenport was letting go of the spokes alternately with his hands in order to rub their blistering backs against his trousers. Every sail on the midmast vanished in a rush of flame, compelling the two men to crouch and shield their faces. Now, said McCoy, stealing a glance ahead at the low shore, four points up, and Captain let her drive. Shred and patches, burning rope and canvas were falling about upon them. The tarry smoke from the smoldering piece of rope at the captain's feet set him off into, violent cough, into a violent coughing fit, during which he still clung to the spokes. The Pyrenees struck her bow, lifted, and she grounded ahead gently to stop. A shower of burning fragments dislodged by the shock fell about them. The ship moved ahead again and struck a second time. She crushed the fragile coral under her keel and drove on and struck a third time. Hard over, said McCoy. Hard over, he questioned gently a minute later. She won't answer, was the reply. All right, she is swinging around. McCoy peered over the side. Soft white sand. Couldn't ask for better. A beautiful, a beautiful bed. As the Pyrenees swung her stern away from the wind, a fearful blast of smoke and flame poured aft. Captain Davenport discerned that the wheel in the blistering agony. He reached the painter, reached the painter of the boat that lay under the quarter. Then looked for McCoy, who was standing aside, to let him go down. You first, the captain cried, gripping him 
by the shoulder and almost throwing him over the rail, but the flame and smoke were too terrible, and he followed hard after McCoy, both men wriggling on the rope and sliding down into the boat together. A sailor in the bow, without waiting for orders, slashed the painter through with his shed knife and the oars poised in readiness, bit into the water, and the boat shot away. A beautiful bed, Captain McCoy murmured, looking back. Aye, a beautiful bed, and all thanks to you, was the answer. The three boats pulled away for the white beach of Pounded Coral, beyond which, on the edge of the coconut grove, could be seen half a dozen grass houses and a score of more exciting natives gazing wide-eyed at the conflagration that had come to land. The boats grounded, and they stepped out on the white beach. And now, said McCoy, I must see about getting back to Pickerham. I want to thank you for listening to these stories from the South Sea Tales by Jack London. I know some of them were a little rough and used, you know, very strong language. Uh, but next week, I will find another book. I'm playing with the idea of going to uh, the Junior Classics Volume 2, uh, but I haven't decided yet. I also might do another uh, Girl Aviators uh, series. So I'm playing with the idea of... of I got several books I want to start next week. But tune in next time to figure out which one I pick. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for viewing this Life to Tape video. Life to Tape is part of Fotations, and if you'd like to help, you can visit FotationsDonation.com, where there are ways you can support financially or by donating equipment. If you'd also like to support on social media, that helps out a lot. There's more information on our social media accounts in the links below. Thank you. Bye-bye.